An epic showdown between Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. Senate is coming to a head this week as they debate Judge Neil Gorsuch's nomination to fill a vacant seat on the Supreme Court. The showdown is about a lot more than Gorsuch himself, and it's got a lot of layers. It's about an obscure rule buried within the Senate rulebook. It's about the way the Senate functions as a legislative body, and it's about the future of the Supreme Court. And it all begins with a Dutch word that means pirate. Hey, I'm Reed Wilson, and this is the Hills History Cast, a podcast on the history and culture of American politics. The fight over the Gorsuch nomination has renewed speculation that Republicans in the Senate might invoke what people on Capitol Hill call the nuclear option, drastically rewriting the Senate rules and limiting the use of the filibuster. This is a big deal. One of those moments when all of Washington waits on pins and needles as history unfolds before us. If Republicans do invoke the nuclear option, it's going to have a long-lasting impact on the way the Senate functions, or doesn't function. This is my colleague Alex Bolton. He's the Hill's Senate correspondent, so he's totally wrapped up in this debate right now. Both Democrats and Republicans are feeling a lot of pressure. Democratic activists are pushing senators to block Gorsuch's nomination with a filibuster because they view him as too extreme. Republican activists want their side to end the filibuster, which would make it easier for them to confirm President Trump's judicial nominees, and this may not be the only one. Both sides are extremely wary of the precedent they're about to set. Let's take a minute to set the stage. A filibuster is when a senator holds the floor for as long as he or she can talk, delaying a vote on a nomination or a piece of legislation he or she doesn't like. Other senators can't cut off someone who's filibustering unless they have the votes to invoke cloture, a motion that ends debate. Under the current rules, that means that any legislation and nominations to the Supreme Court need at least 60 votes to proceed. Remember Mr. Smith goes to Washington? There's this pivotal moment when Jimmy Stewart takes to the floor of the United States Senate and says he will refuse to yield until he's had his say. And I find that if I yield only for a question or a point of order or a personal privilege, that I can hold this floor almost until doomsday. And I'll tell you one thing, that wild horses aren't going to drag me off this floor until those people have heard everything I've got to say, even if it takes all winter. Then a reporter rushes to the phone to alert his editor. Half of official Washington is here to see democracy's finest show of filibuster, the right to talk your head off, the American privilege of free speech in its most dramatic form. The least man in that chamber, once he gets and holds that floor by the rules, can hold it and talk as long as he can stand on his feet, providing always, first, that he does not sit down, second, that he does not leave the chamber or stop talking. Endless debate, talking so long that you delay action on a bill, isn't unique to the United States. Roman senators used to hold up action by talking until they were blue in the face, and legislatures in other countries have done so too. The word filibuster has roots in the Dutch word freibooter, which means pirate, and the Spanish word filibustero, which means freebooting. But it's not exactly something the founders of the American Republic had in mind when they created Congress. The original Senate rulebook included a provision that allowed a simple majority of senators to cut off debate. In 1806, at the suggestion of Vice President Aaron Burr, the Senate dropped that rule, essentially opening the door for any member who wanted to hold the floor as long as he could. Sarah Binder is a political scientist at the Brookings Institution and the George Washington University who wrote the book Politics or Principle, Filibustering in the United States Senate. Why does the Senate drop it? Well, not because they wanted to create the filibuster, not because they are constrained by, they thought the majority was too imposing and they wanted to free up free and deliberative debate, not because they want to empower states or anything like that. Why? They dropped it because Aaron Burr told them to. And they had no clue, it seems, what they were doing. It took a quarter century for the first filibuster to actually take place. 
Gregory Coger, a political scientist at the University of Miami, described the first incident in his book, Filibustering, A Political History of Obstruction in the House and Senate. First filibuster was in 1831, and uh, it's, it's somewhat obscure, right? But it was, it was a case where... Uh, they wanted to build a bridge over the Potomac, and I think some senators thought it was a shady giveaway of public resources to a private company. Uh, and they only had to extend the debate for like a few hours because it was the very end of a congressional session. So they dragged out the debate, and the bill failed. Marty Gold is an expert in Senate rules who's worked for a bunch of Republican senators over the years, including former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist, during a filibuster fight in 2003. He says the early Senate didn't embrace the filibuster right away, even though it would have been allowed under the rules. It had not been the practice of filibustering, so it wasn't that somebody said, isn't this a good thing? Let's eliminate any filibuster controls from the rules and have at it. That is not what happened. Uh, filibusters, in fact, uh, did not really begin to emerge as a tactic until around 1840. In the pre-Civil War years, the filibuster became a more widely used tactic on things like statehood, which threatened the balance between slave states and free states, and whether to seat members who had won close elections under questionable circumstances. In fact, Coger says filibusters in the 19th century were more likely to take place in the House than in the Senate. But the first real filibuster reform effort came after Republicans won control of Congress and the White House in 1888. That year, Benjamin Harrison got fewer votes than Grover Cleveland, but Harrison won the Electoral College. So the Republican majority took over in uh, 1888. Well, they were elected in 1888, and the new majority said, uh, <laughs> despite the fact that we have a president who only won in the Electoral College, we, we want to get our agenda through the House. And we are no longer willing to accept the notion that the minority party can keep us from following through on the promises we made to the American people. So... When the Democrats began to filibuster, the Republicans took what we would now call a, uh, a nuclear option strategy and ended filibustering in the House. A Republican Congress, a Republican president who lost the popular vote, and a nuclear option. That sounds familiar. Senators tried to reform the filibuster almost constantly. Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, Stephen Douglas, Nelson Aldrich all tried to change the rules to rein in the filibuster, but... Every time they produced a rule change, they'd say, here's a motion to change the rules to ban the filibuster. And what happened? Somebody filibustered the motion to ban the filibuster. In the run-up to World War I, Woodrow Wilson used German submarine attacks on American merchant ships to hammer the Senate into changing the rules to allow ending debate. Isolationist Republicans didn't want to allow merchant ships to arm themselves, despite the German threat. But Wilson whipped up this patriotic national security fervor and the senators gave in after raucous crowds burned them in effigy. Still, the filibuster played a big role in some of the most contentious debates in the 20th century, especially around the civil rights bills. In 1957, South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond spoke for 24 hours and 18 minutes while trying to block a civil rights bill meant to make it easier for blacks to vote. In 1964, West Virginia Senator Robert Byrd spoke for more than 14 hours trying to delay a civil rights bill that outlawed racial discrimination. While they're filibustering, senators can talk about whatever they want. Thurman's filibuster takes up 88 pages of the congressional record. He read every state's election law in alphabetical order, then the Declaration of Independence, then George Washington's farewell address. Huey Long, the senator from Louisiana, recited Shakespeare and read a recipe for something called pot liquors. 
Today, a senator doesn't actually have to stand up and speak for hours on end to delay a bill, although some senators have proposed requiring just that. Instead, just the threat of a filibuster is good enough to kill most legislation. But you'll notice we've only been talking about legislation, not nominations. Marty Gold said that in all the debates over reforming the filibuster in the 19th and even the 20th century, no one even mentioned nominations. In the course of all of those debates, not a word is said about nominations. This is all about filibustering on legislation. That's because the Senate operates two sets of schedules, or calendars. One is the legislative calendar. That's where they consider, you know, repealing Obamacare or passing a budget. The other is the executive calendar, where they deal with presidential nominations, including nominations to the Supreme Court. The Senate has legislative responsibilities, and the Senate has advice and consent responsibilities. The legislative filibuster has a very long history in the Senate. They treated the executive calendar differently from the legislative calendar. There are plenty of differences. Treatment of the filibuster is one of them. This whole debate over filibustering Supreme Court nominees is relatively new. The Senate has only ever blocked one Supreme Court nominee with a filibuster. In 1968, the Senate blocked Lyndon Johnson's attempt to elevate his ally, Abe Fortas, to become Chief Justice. Only a handful of other Supreme Court nominees have even faced the threat of a filibuster. So the founders didn't write the filibuster into the Constitution or anything like that. And over the years, the two types of filibusters have existed on something of a parallel track. Legislative filibusters have a history going back to 1831. Executive filibusters, those that deal with nominations, go back only about 50 years to the Fortas nomination. Like so many other debates in Washington, how you frame the history depends on which side of the present question you fall. Marty Gold said it like this. The executive filibuster has only existed since Fortas. Partisan filibusters on the executive side for nominations have only really existed, I think, since uh, the Clinton administration. Partisan filibusters on judicial nominations have only existed since 2003. A partisan filibuster on the Supreme, successful partisan filibuster on the Supreme Court has existed since 2017. So it depends where you choose to, or how one chooses to characterize this history. And that's where Neil Gorsuch comes in. Both kinds of filibusters follow the same rules, for now. Under the current rules, breaking a filibuster by invoking cloture requires votes from 60 senators. At the moment, there are 52 Republicans, 46 Democrats, and two independents who caucus with the Democrats. So that means Republicans need to win over the votes of at least eight Democrats or independents to get Gorsuch over the line. So far, they only have four of those votes. Senators Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, Joe Donnelly, and Michael Bennett say they will vote for cloture. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has hinted that if Democrats filibuster Gorsuch, he might change the rules of the Senate. Here he is on Fox News Sunday this weekend. You say that he'll be confirmed one way or the other, so does that mean if you can't stop a filibuster that you will go to the nuclear option and change the Senate rules so that you can cut off debate with 51 votes and confirm them? But look, what I'm telling you is that Judge Gorsuch is going to be confirmed. The way in which that occurs is in the hands of the Democratic minority. Republicans aren't acting out of nowhere on this. Democratic Majority Leader Robert Byrd made the first big tweaks to rules relating to executive nominations in 1980. Republicans considered making changes in 2003 when Democrats were filibustering a bunch of George W. Bush's judicial nominees. A bipartisan gang of 14 came up with a last-minute agreement to avoid that showdown. 
A decade later, Democrats tinkered with the rules again when Republicans were blocking a bunch of President Obama's nominees. They lowered the bar for confirming lower court judges and executive officials for things like the National Labor Relations Board and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau from 60 votes to 50. And Gregory Coger says they did it in a way that left them open to Republican rule changes in the future. So in November 2013, the Democratic majority basically announced they're not going to accept uh, filibusters against non-Supreme Court nominations anymore. There wasn't, and, and at the time, there wasn't a lot of like legalistic or parliamentary reason behind this. Uh, there's, it was basically, it was a simple assertion that this is how it's going to be from now on. Um, and there wasn't a, you know, like a clearly articulated logical reason for why that same argument wouldn't apply to Supreme Court nominations. They exempted Supreme Court nominations because they wanted to. Democrats now say they regret changing the rules. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer told CNN in January he wishes they hadn't changed the rules because now they have to live with the consequences. This seemingly obscure rules debate actually matters a great deal for two institutions here in Washington, the Senate and the Supreme Court. For years, getting anything through the Senate has required that higher bar of 60 votes, which gives the minority a big say in what happens and creates at least some incentive for bipartisanship. Without the 60-vote threshold, some people worry that the Senate will just become a majority-dominated institution like the House. And that's what Democrats fear most. If Republicans change the rules to block filibusters on the executive calendar, the next logical step is to limit filibusters on the legislative calendar. That means Republicans could, in theory, limit the rights of the minority to influence legislation. Rodell Molyneux used to work for Harry Reid, the last Democratic Senate majority leader. Once you do it for the nominees, and then once you do it for the judges, then you're one or two steps away from doing it for legislation. My fear is that Mitch McConnell will eventually succumb to the pressure of House Republicans and then pretty much the whole machinery around this. So all the groups and so on and so forth. Um, hey, that we need some wins. This is our time. We've already gone this far. You know, screw it. Let's get rid of the filibuster for legislation. And then, for all intents and purposes, the Senate will operate just like the House, where the majority dominates and the minority has little input on anything. The fallout for the Supreme Court could be just as consequential. Filling the ninth seat after an abrupt rules change could shred the court's last vestiges of perceived independence. The court is supposed to be a nonpartisan arbiter of the law, but a lot of people worry the court is now in danger of looking like a partisan body, just like Congress. Here's Gregory Coger. You know, previously the Supreme Court derives a lot of its influence on the notion that, from the notion that it's this objective, impartial, body that just sort of interprets the, the, the law and the Constitution uh, in the national interest. And the, the further, the more it becomes perceived as a partisan institution um, in which it's staffed by the most uh, partisan and questionable of means, the less influential and respectable the Supreme Court becomes. Democrats find themselves in something of a no-win situation here. Some in the party want to block Gorsuch at all costs. Others want to wait until the next seat on the Supreme Court opens up to play the filibuster card because they think that seat would give President Trump the chance to change the ideological balance of the court. And this hasn't even really been a knockdown, drag out fight over a Supreme Court seat. With everything else going on, it's been kind of under the radar. Rodel Molyneux says that means Democrats are at risk of losing the filibuster and no one really knowing about it. If you're going to die on your sword for this, then let's let the whole world know why we're doing it, 
and why it's important, and we have not done that. If Democrats filibuster Gorsuch's nomination and Senate Republicans change the rules, then Gorsuch will get his seat and Democrats will have won nothing. If Democrats let his nomination go through, they risk angering a base that wants nothing more than to thwart Trump. And if they wait until the next seat opens up, there's no guarantee that Republicans won't just change the rules then. But either way, the filibuster, as it's existed over the last 50 years, is about to undergo a very, very serious change. Hey, thanks for listening today. We want to thank Gregory Koger, Sarah Binder, Marty Gold, and Rodel Molyneux for taking the time to chat with us. And thanks, as always, to our producers, Lisa Rule and Maura Whiteman. Tell us what you thought of today's episode, podcast at thehill.com, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter for a behind-the-scenes look at how these episodes get made and a preview of what's to come. I'm Alex Bolton. And I'm Reed Wilson. This is The Hill's History Cast. Thank you.